Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking with six-time Ironman world champion Mark Allen about the importance of preventing preventable running injuries. So the big question is this, how are runners like us, who don't like hearing doctors say, just stop running, who know that we simply have to stay active, how do we heal in a way that lets us stay strong, maintain our running fitness, and keep preparing for the next race, and still heal without making the injury worse? Well, that is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Dr. Christopher Segler, and welcome to the Doc on the Run podcast. Today, I'm really and truly honored and excited because we have an amazing guest on the show, one of the most inspirational figures of all of endurance sports and the greatest triathlete who ever lived. And I know Mark always kind of gets shy when people say that, but that is a big statement. But if you know Mark Allen, I know you agree. Mark not only won six Ironman world titles in Hawaii, but he was also the very first ever Olympic distance world champion. He won the Nice International Triathlon every single time he showed up on the starting line. 10 times to be exact, and he's basically won every major title in triathlon during his racing career. Because of all that, ESPN actually named him the greatest endurance athlete of all time. Now, I actually suspect that Mark Allen's been on more magazine covers than any other triathlete in history. In fact, I actually still have a copy of an outside magazine back from 1998 that had Mark Allen on the cover. And in that issue, there was an article where Mark was basically trying to share some advice with the rest of us mortals, trying to figure out how we could stay in shape for the rest of our lives. And I think in that article, long after Mark actually stopped racing Ironman, they referred to him in that issue as the fittest man alive. Everybody knows Mark won Ironman Hawaii year after year, but what many people don't know actually is that for years preceding his series of wins, Dave Scott was going home with the titles. And part of the reason I really thought that it would be great to have Mark on the show is that, you know, Mark is one of the very few people who during those early years of serious Ironman racing never had to have surgery because of overtraining injuries. The truth is today we have a lot of advantages. We understand training methods, but all these training methods were really new or non-existent during that time. And many Ironman triathletes, because the sport was so new, they were just grinding themselves into the ground with their workout routines. I mean, some of those people are kind of famous for those routines. And most of the top guys from that era actually had to have surgery or had major overtraining injuries that took them out of competition because they beat themselves up so badly. Now, fortunately, Mark's agreed to come on the show. He's taking time out of his schedule. He's going to share his story with all of us today. And in this episode, he's going to share with you three truly useful ideas. One, the keys to competing at a high level for decades and never getting a serious injury. Number two, the shift it takes to make a difference between winning and losing. And some simple strategies any athlete can take in their lives today to stay healthy, get stronger, and run longer. So Mark, welcome to the show. Wow, what an intro, Chris. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah well, you earned it, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> Uh, I was just talking with somebody before the um, the interview, and and I was saying, you know, it's when you just think about, like, I mean, forget all the Ironman races that you did, all of that. When you just think about, like, in any endurance athlete, like the capacity to show up in Nice and win every time you show up in the starting line. I mean, the idea of you know any endurance athlete dominating for that period of time in any sport at all is just truly astonishing. So, I mean, it really is amazing what you've done in triathlon. It's not just that. It's not just how long you're doing it, but it was the fact that you were also winning at such an incredibly high level for so long. You know, along those lines, though, you know, probably the greatest moment in, in the history of endurance competition, which, of course, an entire book was written about this, is actually never caught on film. And I was watching this as a kid. I was watching the Ironman World Championships on uh, television. At the time, I think it was actually like a, on the wide world of sports back when they had that show. And you and Dave Scott, then reigning champion, were running side by side like the entire way down the Queen K Highway. You guys have been together for all day, you know, right next to each other, not talking, not even exchanging words, basically. And then I think they cut to a commercial or something. And the commentator all of a sudden says, Mark Allen's made a move. You know, he's pulled ahead and Dave Scott seems unable to answer. And incredibly, then the camera shows like you guys are side by side. Next thing, you're way out in front of him and just pulling away. And so I understand there was like a little snafu with the camera crew and they missed like this one incredible moment. Since we never got to see it, you can't see it. It's not anywhere on film. Tell us what that moment was like. I mean, what went through your head in that moment when you finally decided it was your time to finally beat Dave Scott? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the back the backstory on that missing 
I don't know what it is, maybe 30 seconds, was that that was back in the day when uh, you actually had film that you had to put in a camera. You know, video, a video tape had to go in the camera. And Dave and I had been racing each other at that point for over eight hours side by side. As you said, no words exchanged. I mean, what are you going to say? Hey, <laughs> right. if you need, a, you need another Gatorade, I'll get it for you at this next aid station. <laughs> There's not a whole lot that's going to, but, you know, you're, you're in such a different sort of, state of awareness is the best way to describe mm -hmm. it. And you really don't need to ask the guy next to you how he's feeling to understand how he is doing. And being next to Dave, I could feel that he was just so strong and so solid that there was absolutely no trick that I could pull, like a quick surge that would break him. I Literally, I was just going to have to outrace him. And that was something that I had never done. This is my seventh time at the Ironman. I had never won it. I'd been second twice, third once, fifth twice. Uh, one year, I was in the lead with Dave on the bike when my bike broke and I had to drop out. So I didn't have a good track record. David won it six times. He was hoping right. for number seven. And um, you know, the marathon had been unfolding, 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 and each of us was trying to figure out when is this thing going to break open. And at one point, I think we both realized probably at about the same time that neither of us was, was going to pull away early. It was going to come down to somewhere near the end of the race. And we both knew that on the last long uphill before you go down the hill on, on Pliny Road down into town of Kona and then do that last little bit to the mm -hmm. finish, that was going to be the last real terrain feature where something might shake loose. So we both, I know, had the same strategy, which is you get to the bottom of that hill, there's an aid station, and at that aid station, you grab one last glass of whatever you're going to drink, get a little one last little ounce of fuel in the tank, and then take off, right? Right. We got to the aid station, it was coming up and we there had been this little tussle going on at the aid stations because if you're the, the first of two to go through, then you are the first one to grab for stuff and it kind of disrupts the, the flow of the volunteers for the guy who's behind. And so each of us was trying to position to be the first one through. Dave got the inside track. He reached over. He grabbed for one last glass of whatever he was drinking. I started to come in behind him to grab my one last glass of energetic hope right <laughs> and just as I started to reach for it something inside of me just said go and it was like I was shot out of a can and I I pulled my hand back and I took off as fast as I could and um, you know sprinting at the end of an Ironman that was you know I was doing my best to do that because I knew that that was my chance and in the few seconds it took Dave to reach over grab his glass and look back I'd actually put a, a gap of several feet on him and all of a sudden he was faced with something that he had never had to face before <laughs> which is he, he from hour six on in the race if you he, he, he was anywhere close to you he was going to win it and all of a sudden here I am pulling away from him in his territory his part of the course where he had shown that he was he was by far the best and there was this confusion and he didn't quite know how to respond or react. And he, I, I don't even think he took that drink. I think he just kind of threw it and started trying to catch up. But it was too late because I was building my momentum. And I, I had seen that Dave was actually stronger than me on the downgrades. Mm. And, but I was stronger on the upgrades. And so this was a big, actual big hill up and a very big hill down. So I knew that I had to get to the bottom of the hill in town before you make that last little stretch to the finish line on Elite Drive. I had to get there before Dave because if we were together at the top of the hill, he was going to get it on the downhill. And so right. to go back to the, the footage story, the guys who were watching were so mesmerized. They, you know, they were capturing it, but they were completely mesmerized. And we were actually being followed by hundreds of people on bikes and mopeds and there were cars and, and, but about the only sound was just the sound of our feet soaking wet shoes, hitting the ground over and over and over. The guy in the lead camera didn't notice that on his time code that he was running out of tape. And so all of a sudden he's out of tape and all of a sudden he realizes he's out of tape just as I start to make my move. And so he has to fumble around, get another tape, get it out, get it back in, close it up, get it up to speed, and then you can see it. And right. then, so I got a call from the television producer of the show that year, about two weeks after the race, and he goes, I want to apologize. He goes, I'm going to tell you right now so that you're not surprised in the show. When you made your break, and he went through the whole story, we don't have it. We don't have it. Oh, man. And so, again, you see me 
you know, Dave and I are together and you start to see the move happen and all of a sudden I'm about 30 or 40 feet ahead of him. The critical piece of that for me was that the logical thing to do was grab, drink and go. Right. I, I start, I went over to grab and then the illogical happened. I don't know if it was something inside of me or the island saying go, but I, it was like, I, it was almost like I heard this clap that just said, right. Wow. And I went completely illogical because even though it was fairly close to the finish, it's, there's still plenty of time to run out of energy because right. you're, you're, you're right on that edge of replacing what you're using to maintain the pace that you're going. Mm-hmm. And so it was just this completely illogical move that became the break that it was the final piece that put the, the race in, in my lap. And then I ended up winning that year by mm-hmm. a very small margin, 58 seconds. <laughs> out of a whole day. Out of a whole day. Dave broke his previous world's record by almost 18 minutes. Yeah, isn't that I crazy? Did, I did my best time on that day by almost 30 minutes. Oh my gosh. And again, you know, a very small margin, 58 seconds. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you know, it's so interesting though, because again, it's like, even if you, you know, read Iron War, it's like everybody was trying to figure out what to do during that era, right? And, and nobody can show up in Hawaii, win the world championships and, or for that matter, win 20 races over a three-year period like you did without learning what really works and what doesn't. And you didn't have the same resources available to us. I mean, today, runners, triathletes, ultra marathoners, we all have a all of this information and wisdom at our disposable. I mean, you can go back to the total triathlete, which you wrote a long time ago with Bob Babbitt, right? And today we can listen to interviews like this. Um, we can hire a coach like you. We can, you know, find somebody that has this enormous base of knowledge to help us, but there was no Mark Allen to help you when you were training. So you had to figure that out. So you had to experiment. Maybe you can share a little bit about us, uh, how you really set about this process of experimentation that led you to become so successful through triathlon. Yeah, I started in the sport in 1982. I was 24 years old. I'd been out of college for two years. I saw the Ironman on TV and thought, crazy, but I want to go see if I can cross that finish line. And I, I'd been a swimmer growing up. I was very mediocre. I wasn't world-class. I didn't go to Olympic trials or set world's records or anything, but I had to pick up cycling and running fairly quickly. And so I kind of looked at what top cyclists were doing to get ready for something that was going to be around 112 miles. I looked at what marathoners were doing to get ready for a marathon. I knew what I needed to do to get ready for a 2.4 mile swim. And I thought, If I put all of this individual knowledge together, the volume of my training will be so massive that it will kill me. There's no way I can do it. And so really right from that very first year, because there were no coaches, there were no resources, there was no knowledge base of how to train for something like this. But I thought, okay, call it down, bring it into more of a realistic package and, and let me just see what happens. And so that's kind of what I did. And, uh, but as a swimmer, you know, I, I had this concept like go hard all the time. And that's just mm-hmm. the way coaches had us do stuff in the seventies and eighties. You know, they'd throw the team in the pool, give us the hardest thing they could come up with. We come back and do the same thing the next day. There was not really this concept of building an aerobic base or right. there was no knowledge about how certain levels of activity stimulate the development of fat burning, low stress on the body, anaerobic being high stress, carbohydrate burning, and the the necessity to balance these two fitness developments. You know, just as a background, human beings are the best endurance animals on the planet. We can go farther longer than anything else. Like in the Western States, 100, you know, 100 mile race in the Sierras, all, all, all in the mountains. The record for humans is about something like 20 minutes faster than the record for horses who also do that 100 mile race. So, interesting. So, you know, we're built to just kind of go and go and go and go and go. I mean, think about speed. I mean, a little squirrel running across your yard is probably faster than you are when you're sprinting, right? Right. So anyway, right away, I, I saw that my swimmer mentality of just go out there and go hard all the time wasn't working for cycling. And it was definitely detrimental for running because I started to get like knee pain and you know, right. IT bands got tight and, you know, things were hurting. And I thought things shouldn't hurt. Interesting concept, right? Yeah. You know, it's like a a workout can be painful, but when I'm done, there should be no pain. Right. 
Fortunately, I met uh, Phil Maffetone, who had been doing a lot of research on heart rate training and dividing your, your workouts up into aerobic blocks and then adding in anaerobic work, interval work, speed work, appropriately in the right amounts, not too much throughout the year. And so that's what I started doing. And I saw that when I did that, when I just kind of slowed things down, I still got more fit. I still got faster, mm. but the, there was no more pain or, or feeling mm. like I was hurting my body. My body was rebuilding and regenerating day after day after day, week after week. And one of the main goals or tenets that I had in my training over the years was to be able to train consistently. Anybody can go really hard for a short period of time. A hard, fast block of training will bump your fitness up really quickly, but it's high stress. And it's very easy to go off the other side where all of a sudden you're injured, you get ill, you get sick, your, your immune system is suppressed because of the anaerobic work. It's high stress, cortisol goes up and all that kind of stuff. And then you can't train. You're burned out. You're unmotivated. You can't get out of bed. You feel like you got run over by a truck or maybe you want to train, but you can't because something's injured. If you're not training, you are not getting more fit. Exactly. Right? And so I really tried to stay on the safe side of the, the training line. Of course, there were times where I overdid it and I had to take some days easy or something would start to hurt, but I didn't let it go on and on and on. And I also saw that if I was maybe one day feeling like a superhero and doing amazing, and then the next day I felt like I was could barely get out of bed, I knew I was on that edge mm -hmm. and I would back it down. So, you know, that was the overall guiding principle of how I designed my training. And a lot of guys, they didn't have the patience to do this. They wanted to just do the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the patience to put on a heart rate monitor, slow things down, build that aerobic base, do it in a way that's low stress on the body. But, you, you know, you commented that my, my career was long and it was, it was successful. And I think those two things really go together. Mm -hmm. If you have a long career, it's probably going to be successful because you are keeping things in balance. Yeah, you're testing your body, you're, the races are hard, but you're probably, as I did, not overdoing speed work, which is the biggest trap for most athletes. They right. just can't hold back. They want to go hard. And if they don't feel trash when they're done with a workout, they don't feel like they did anything. Mm -hmm. You train aerobically, you come back, and most times you feel like you have more energy. You don't feel like you've got to just collapse on the couch for an hour. And so if you're training smart, okay, you test yourself today, but you know that tomorrow you're still going to be able to get up and do something. That's good. If you test yourself today and you don't even know how you're going to train for a week, that's not so good. And again, right. if you're not training, you're not getting more fit. Yeah, that's the bottom line. I mean, and that's obviously what I deal with all the time is people get injured and then they're terrified. They're freaking out because they're injured and they know they can just, they can feel their fitness that they work so hard for just vanishing right in front of them. And it's true. So if you're not training, it doesn't really matter how much further ahead you were in training of all your competition. Your competition is most definitely going to pass you if you don't train for weeks because you get injured. Mm -hmm. That's just the bottom line. I mean, now we have tools that make that easier, right? I mean, when you started racing, though, there were no GPS watches. There were no, heart, like, certainly no wrist-based heart rate monitors at all. All that stuff was just being developed. There weren't even you know, aero helmets or um, aero carbon frames and, and this whole idea of periodization and training that that wasn't even a thing when you started right at, at all. Every, I mean, I understand there are people that during your era that actually went out and they would literally do like a 112 mile bike ride, run a marathon and swim 2.4 miles like once a week, even some of those guys. <laughs> Just insane, right? Completely insane. You know, what do you really think some of the training principles that prove really timeless out of all this stuff you experimented with during this time, what are some of those timeless principles that you still use that you discovered, you know, through that period of, of experimentation? What are some of those principles that you use still today when you coach athletes? Yeah, I, I would say the, the first point is always start from where your fitness is right now. Mm. If you've never done the sport, obviously you're starting from the very beginning. If you have taken an off season, you're not starting at the peak of fitness that you ended last year at. You're starting from a, a base that's a little bit lower. Right. Uh, and so start from where you're at with what you can manage. Figure out, and this is what I do with all my athletes that I coach, I figure out what, what can this person do on a basic weekly volume for the next month without 
destroying themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so I put that in place and then slowly build them up. Slowly building up means maybe you add 10% onto the weekly volume until you get to a point that's like, okay, that's, that's enough now. That's enough. And so that's, that's one thing. Start from where you're at. Second thing is to really figure out what paradigm is going to set your training zones so that you do do most of your training aerobically. Again, human beings are aerobic animals. They're not anaerobic animals. So necessarily. And if you start to see that, yeah, you're doing stuff and it, it's hard, it's painful, you're getting really fit, and then all of a sudden you can feel, it feels like your fitness is slipping away, even though you're training hard. That's a mm-hmm. sign that you're, over, that you're overtraining. You know, when, when you do speed work, initially a few things happen. It, it, you, your body goes into a super recovery mode afterwards. Your body releases testosterone, human growth hormone, a lot of things that make you stronger and faster. If you do it too frequently, too often for too long a period of time, all of a sudden, all those good things that get released through speed work will become suppressed and then you don't release them. And then all of a sudden, your body starts to actually eat some of that muscle that you laid down that you worked so hard to get. And then you start to feel like you're getting out of shape and your adrenal system gets depleted. And so your reserve battery is running lower and lower and lower. And unless you back off, you're going to drag yourself down into the ground. The thing is, it's, it's tricky because it does feel like I'm working so hard, but I'm getting in worse shape. Right. So if you're working hard, this is another principle. If you're working really hard and it feels like you're getting in worse shape, back it off, back the volume down, back the intensity down, take an easy week, take an easy two weeks until all of a sudden you feel this reservoir filling up inside of you. That's like, Oh yeah, geez, I, I didn't realize I was that tired. I was, I was way overdoing it. Right. So that's another principle. The third one is, is pick your races wisely. Um, it's very easy to over race, meaning you do too many races in one year. Racing is, it's exciting. It's fun. It's, it's this huge community with thousands of people doing the same thing you are on the same day with the same focus, the same effort. But if you do it too often, again, it's going to burn your body out. That's another principle. Another principle is make sure that you do take long off seasons. Let your body decondition to then the following year go up to a new level. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is they train all year. You know, maybe they finish with an Ironman in the fall. They take two weeks easy and then it's like, ooh, I don't, I don't want to let all this good fitness go. I'm going to start back training and hold on to it and then, and then build up from there. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You might drop down a little bit of fitness in two weeks or three weeks fairly easy. But you really have to go to a point where you're actually kind of starting to get out of shape. Mm. And then your body's actually building its reserves. And then when you come back, then you can go up to that next level the following year. And when I talk about an off-season, it's, it's not sitting on the couch and binge-watching Netflix. It's actually about still moving, moving your body, being outside, but doing it purely for the enjoyment. Mm. You know, I love going out and doing trail running. I love surfing. I love cross-country skiing. Whatever it is, do it purely for the enjoyment aspect without any goal of having it be something that is getting you more fit. That's how you do a great off-season. And then, you know, when your fitness does drop a little bit and it's time to get back at it, again, as I said, start from where your fitness is at that point in time. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that really is the key, right? But that is a difficult thing for us to really just sit still, to wait, to be patient. I mean, whether it's speed training or trying to sit through an off season, I mean, I think it's very, very difficult for athletes to feel like they're getting slower or weaker. But as you said, if you don't do that, your body doesn't re- build those reserves. And then you wind up trying to accumulate fitness beyond what you're actually capable. And you wind up with an overtraining injury, which of course is the very worst possible affliction of an endurance runner. So, uh, you know, obviously we get injured, we get, we're going to get weaker, like we talked about, and then we have to start all over after we destroy all of our fitness through the rest and recovery process. And I think everybody listening to this can agree that any overtraining injury is really a consequence of not recovering enough before the next workout. And I mean, I know that's true because I see people all the time and that's how they get injured. But I was a little shocked one time when you told me that tissue damage, I was actually at your, your 
uh, weekend retreat. And, and you told me that the tissue damage I was getting from my usual routine was probably preventing me from qualifying for Kona. And what I, I don't, you probably don't remember this because it was years ago, but basically I explained that every year my routine would be that I'd ramp up my running fitness in the off season, which is not really what you're talking about doing at all. Um, I would train for marathon training, thinking that if I went and did the Houston Marathon in January or February as a warm-up for my training season, then I'd basically be, you know, I'd have sound running fitness, and then I'd be in a good position to start really training and build my base from there for my Ironman training through the rest of the year. Well, you listened to me, and you just said, you know, you should probably stop doing the Houston Marathon if you really want to get to Hawaii. And I was actually kind of shocked. And at the time, I wasn't at all worried about getting an overtraining injury because I see athletes all the time who get them. And I think I know the things to not do specifically to injure myself. I'm like, I'm not going to do speed work on back-to-back days. I'm not going to do hill repeats on back-to-back days. But what you pointed out to me that day that I was actually totally unaware of was the effect that the tissue damage from an early marathon in the year, like what effect that tissue damage was having on my actual athletic performance throughout the rest of the year. That hadn't occurred to me. And I was hoping maybe you could explain to athletes why we make this mistake of training too hard or racing earlier in the year than we really should and how that tissue damage really does sort of get carried throughout the rest of the year, kind of screwing up our season when we do a a big race like early in the season. You know, I, I, I don't have any scientific data on this. I don't think you can really, really focus on building and building and building and and getting more and more fit for more than nine or maybe 10 months at a time. And so, you know, if you're, let's say, doing Houston in January, you probably started training for it in, you know, October or something. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll make that as just an assumption. So, you know, you've trained building from October through January, you do the Houston Marathon. You didn't have that downtime. And then after Houston, obviously, you're going to take enough of a break so that, you know, you're not sore and all that's out of your legs. But then you're starting to build, continue to build again for your triathlons, which probably go through September, October. So you've actually had almost a maybe a 12-month cycle of trying to build and maintain and build and maintain and build and maintain. And I don't know if the human body at the level of peak performance, if you can do that. Certainly, we can, we can exercise every day of the year. You know, that's how we're put together. We're put together to move. Right. But peak performance is a whole different aspect of movement, obviously. Mm -hmm. And a marathon is, you know, it's a big ask of the body. It's not necessarily a a natural natural thing to run as fast as you can for 26.2 miles. Humans can run that far, but not super fast without it having a certain consequence. And so I've actually never seen a triathlete who's done a marathon as a way to prep for their Ironman marathon and had it be anything beneficial. Oh, interesting. What I have seen triathletes do that really does seem to help any distance triathlon run that they're doing is in their off season to do shorter running races, five mm. K's or 10 K's. And those I think are so potent and powerful because they're short enough that you can actually go really hard. Okay. They're not long enough that you get a ton of tissue damage. So you can recover for them. When you go really hard running, it really helps raise your VO2 max up. It gives you a huge bump in fitness when you do that. You know, I would always do a couple running races, two or three running races in the early part of the season, January, February, March, maybe even into April. I might do like two 10Ks and a 5K, something like that. And, you know, I wouldn't specifically target them, but I would do them and just pushing your body at that super extreme limit that you can for those short running races. The next week after I recovered, I'd come back and all of a sudden my aerobic pace was a lot faster. Everything was flowing. I could feel my legs getting stronger. The integrity was getting stronger, the muscles. Half marathon might still work for that, but for me, it was too long of a distance. Mm -hmm. In a marathon for sure, it's going to be anaerobic, but it's on the low end of anaerobic. And that's sort of that gray area of anaerobic work where it's still high stress on your body because you've shifted over to carbohydrate burning, which is part of the fight fight or flight response, which is high stress. But it's not at a high enough intensity to really give you this huge boost in VO2 max. And so you're doing all the hard stuff without the bump. And so that's kind of the short version of why I don't necessarily recommend doing a marathon as a tool to get you faster for running, let's say, a marathon in an Ironman. If you have a bucket list iron uh, marathon, 
go for it. You know, if you qualified, you want to qualify for Boston, you qualified, you did it, go for it. You know, that will be something that's with you forever. But don't think that using that is going to be a great tool to get you faster running your Ironman in, in Louisville or wherever it is that you're going to run it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that's sort of that same idea of how over and over I've read that so many athletes will do their um, speed work too slow and their long runs too fast. And then all of their training winds up in that gray area you talk about that's really not beneficial. So you're you're kind of losing the benefits of speed work and you're losing the benefits of your long runs with all this effort just because you're not doing either one correctly. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a real problem. But one of the other problems and one of the serious like what I think of as a dangerous thought pattern that seems to afflict endurance athletes is the sort of misconception or belief that success in long distance events, since they're long, just requires training long, you know, that we need to run 18, 20, 22 miles frequently, that you have to do a hundred mile ride every week. We're supposed to suffer every day. And we're, and with the sort of teachings of neuroplasticity and all that, that we're supposed to suffer the same way we expect to suffer on race day and we seem to believe sometimes that that suffering is going to make us strong enough to mentally overcome anything on race day. That on race day, just because we've been suffering, we're going to be able to just like not grab our cup of hope and bolt away from Dave Scott, you know. And I don't think it's really a great idea. So why do you think triathletes and marathon runners seem to cling to that idea so strongly? Well, because there, there's a certain aspect of what you just described that is true. And let me see if I can explain it. One of the reasons we train is to make it so that race day is more of a normal experience for us. Okay, so when you're getting ready, let's say to do an Ironman, you want to do training that will help you feel like this day is just kind of like so much of what I've already done. Right. And so, but the, the way you do that is probably a little bit different than you just described. You just described the way to not do it. Right. You know, do your, your speed work, but not fast enough. Do your long runs, but do them too hard. So they turn into that gray area. They don't, they don't develop their aerobic system, but they're not fast enough to really bump up your VO2 max and all these things that come with it. This is how I would do it. I did almost all of my long rides aerobically. I got my body used to just being out there for five hours, six hours. I would do two or three seven-hour rides throughout the year. Not many, but just a couple. Mm. So that the overall energy expenditure of the ride was the same or more than I would be putting out in the Ironman. Okay, so what I've done is I've taken my body beyond as far as the amount of time and the energy expenditure that I'll have to deal with in Kona. So that when I get off the bike in Kona, it's like, it's done already? That is awesome. I could have gone another 30 miles, you know, something like that. Long runs, I would do more or less about the same amount of time that once in a while that it would take me to run the marathon in Kona, but certainly not the distance because I don't want to have the breakdown recovery of training for 26.2 miles. But people ask me, well, how can I, how can I work my race pace if I'm going slower than my race pace in training all the time in, in my long runs? This is what you do. You do speed work, which is much faster than you'll ever have to run in your Ironman, half Ironman, Olympic distance or sprint distance race. Go faster, but not as long. Do a handful of medium distance runs, hour, hour 15, maybe hour 20, where you do some real fast race pace stuff that again, should be a little bit faster for certain periods than you will do in your race. That is what will help you then when you get in the race and you're going whatever pace it is you're holding, yeah, it'll be challenging. But at the same time, there's going to be part of your brain that said, you know what, this is hard, but in my training, I was up here, sure, for a shorter period of time, but that was training. But I know that I can go there if I need to. And that helps normalize the day so that your stress perception of what's going on is diminished. Mm -hmm. If, If you're always training at race pace, that's going to be your body's feeling like this is my upper limit. And so when you're in the race all day long is going to feel like, oh my God, I'm hitting the ceiling right now. If you've gone longer, but not as, not as fast or shorter and much faster in your training, you combine those two together. When you're in the race, you know that on all levels, your ceiling is still higher than what you're going during the race. I hope that explains it. Oh yeah, no, that it totally makes sense. And it actually, when when I actually had my fastest Ironman race ever, I just so clearly remember like I was basically just on target for my goal. And, you know, in the last few miles are not easy. Um, And 
I mean, it just, and, I mean, it's not that it really gets that much more painful, but mentally it just becomes more difficult because you just feel like you should just turn on the brakes, you know? And I clearly remember like right before I got to my very last, you know, when I hit like 25 miles, I remember like looking at my watch and I thought, you know, two weeks ago, I did like 12 mile repeats and I was going like two minutes a mile faster. I can totally do this. And I actually, the last mile of the marathon was my fastest mile the entire race. Hmm. And it was literally because I was like, I can totally do this. I just ran, you know, this pace like over and over just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I can do this is no problem. And it, so it is a mental trick, you know, but a lot of this in training really is a mental trick. And part of the mental difficulty in, tra- in training, I think really comes down to exercising restraint like you've already talked about. And, you know, we don't want to wait for those adaptations, right? We don't want to wait for our fitness, our, our base fitness to really build up. And that waiting can be difficult. So what do you think that we can do as athletes to believe and just have faith in that process of building our fitness without tearing ourselves apart? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, Chris, because a lot of people don't have that. They, they're patient for two weeks or three weeks, and all of a sudden they're like, screw this, I'm, I'm going hard because Mark told me to go slow and, I, you know, follow this heart rate. And I've had had to slow down two minutes a mile from my normal pace. And there's no way that this is going to work for me because my physiology is so much different than everybody else's on this planet. Right. We're all 99 and a half percent the same, our DNA. So, you know, that doesn't fly. First and foremost, you got to ask yourself, why are you training? You know, what, what do you get out of training on a day-to-day basis? Is it, does it only feel worthwhile if you're getting faster or is there just like a real basic happiness you get from swimming, cycling, running, whatever it is that you do each day. And, and that should be the, the bottom line. Like today was unspectacular as far as I didn't set a PR. I, I wasn't particularly loose. My legs were a little tired when I started out. They, they came around. Unspectacular is fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm still like, yeah, I, I, I was still out there. Right. I still did it. That's pretty cool, you know, and tomorrow's going to be another day like that. And each one of those days that we do is it's putting something in, in the energy fitness bank. You know, it's a little deposit each and every day. You deposit a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, week after week after week. And then eventually something happens and you, you get a, a, a bank statement. And all of a sudden your swimming goes from 115 per hundred to 110, like overnight or something happens in a long ride and all of a sudden you're able to keep up with these people that have been pulling away from you or you know you're on the track and you're doing something and all of a sudden you're running six seven eight seconds faster for quarters and it's like what did I do those are the moments that are those are like the little bonus gifts but again it's more like I always felt like if I'm just going out there each and every day that's putting something in there that will come out in a big withdrawal, especially on my race day. And, and that was also the, the final one piece that I kind of didn't explain about how do you manage all this together? You have these days where you put it all together. They're called races. We want to have, like I said, elements of training simulate parts of the race, but there's never anything that should be the entire race on, race, on training days save those special moments for the four, five, six, seven days throughout the year where you actually do compete. Mm, interesting. Yeah, no, that's really useful. But, you know, we don't want to do that, right? It's We want to win every day. <laughs> <laughs> that leads to all kinds of stresses, you know. And, um, you know, and aside from the obvious biomechanical stress that athletes get just from training, from beating themselves up, from doing hard workouts. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of mental and emotional stresses and how those affect you. Because, I mean, we do, we do all think about biomechanical stressors uh, that we apply during training. We like to focus on running form to decrease the pounding forces, you know, forefoot, midfoot strike, all that kind of stuff. What kind of stress and strain we're putting in terms of avoiding metatarsal stress fractures and that kind of stuff. But not just athletes. I mean, I, I lecture at medical conferences about running injuries and I hear doctors and we talk about this in some of the lectures I do where I'm like, you have to talk to athletes. You have to talk to your patients and figure out what are these other stressors. There's all these different kinds of stressors, emotional stress, you know, psychological stress, environmental stressors, hormonal stressors, all these different things. But all we as doctors and many athletes, frankly, just want to talk about the biomechanical stress because it seems like that has some you know, direct application to our weakness or something. So you know, what do you really think about this in terms of work stress, emotional stress, and all these other forms of stressors that actually can contribute to poor performance or overtraining injuries in these athletes? 
all, all those external stresses are some of the biggest uh, aspects of, of being an athlete that people completely ignore. Mm -hmm. They're so, but they have such a, a, a huge impact on our performance, both negatively if it's too much or positively if we, if we make shifts in our, just our habits and how we, how we lead our lives. You know, very, very simple rudimentary example. The first six Ironmans that I did from 1982 through 1988, I didn't win. The winter of 1989, that year that became the great race with Dave Scott and I, I went down to New Zealand and I trained down there for six weeks. It was completely on the other side of the planet. It was before internet and all that. So I was completely disconnected from all the normal stuff that I do around my home that keep me busy outside of just training. Down there, I had nothing that was stressful. All I had to do all day was train. And so I get up in the morning, it's like, what do I want to do today? Oh, I'll train, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, all of a sudden I saw that I was doing these incredible volumes of training that, that I had seen some of the other guys do, but completely scared me because I thought there's no way I can recover doing that mm -hmm. stuff. But suddenly I realized I can't recover doing that if my life is complicated. Interesting. If I simplify take out a lot of the responsibilities that normally take energy to take care of every day. Right. I can, I can handle an amazing amount of training. I can handle an amazing amount of speed work also. Mm. So if you know that your training plan is pretty sound, like you should be getting faster, but you are not, it's time to put the training plan away and look at all that other stuff going right. on. You know, your commitment, time commitments to family, to work, what are stresses at work? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you under dietary stress? Are you eating way too many carbs, not enough protein, good oils, you know, all the stuff to keep everything in balance? Because it's not just about your training. At that point, you have all these other things. And you have a, we all have a, like a stress ball. Like, you know, we can handle this much stress, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but if 75% of that ball is taken up with stresses outside of your training, there's no way that you can handle much training stress without breaking down, without right. getting injured, without getting sick, without getting burned out. 99% of the time when an athlete says, I'm not getting faster, what am I doing wrong? I delve, I, you know, I, I take the peels, the, the layers off the end in and I say, well, what's going on in your life? You know, and, 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 do you have any other stresses going on? It's like, Oh yeah, my my job. I've had this project that I'm working on, and, and it's you know it's been weeks of hours and hours, and I'm moving, and I'm getting a divorce, and you know there's the answer. It's very common. I mean, it really is. It's I um I actually was thinking about doing an episode recently called um, "If You're Not Healing, It's Probably Because Your Boss Is a Jerk." And <laughs> and it, I mean, I see athletes all the time that have been doing the same routine for a long time, and then suddenly they're baffled like you know i'm not racing now i don't get it i don't know why and then they'll say well yeah we actually got this new boss he's a real jerk and it's incredibly stressful at work now i've had the same job for 10 years but now it just it's terrible um or somebody will say oh yeah well you know my husband just filed for divorce and we have a two-year-old and well that would be stressful right but they're confused because they don't really think about that just like you say they don't really think that matters they're like oh well, that's the thing i put it over here and then i go train and I don't even have to think about that. And we'd like to separate and we want to believe we're strong enough to separate these, these stressors, you know, or somehow control them or ignore them and, and enhance control them, right, by just pretending they're not there. Mm -hmm. But they totally affect us. So um, I think that's sort of one of the basic premises that you taught at the Fit Soul, Fit Body Retreat that you and, and Brant put on. And you know, I, I attended many years ago and really enjoyed that. But a lot of what I learned that weekend was frankly not what I expected. And you and Brant both spoke a lot about this small shift in spirituality and, or mental awareness that can really make the difference for an athlete. And one of the things that you particularly talked about that weekend was about how every year Dave had been winning. But then once you finally made this switch, what's illustrated really in the book Iron War, you know, after that, you're just taking home the titles, right? It was just like night and day, like you were losing and then suddenly you're just winning. I was hoping maybe you could just share a little bit about the insight that Brant helped you gain to make that switch. Yeah, Brant, Brant Secunda, is a, he, he teaches a, a, tra a tradition that comes from the Huichol people in central Mexico. It's a very traditional culture. They have a very developed um, 
spiritual way of dealing with life. All of life is sort of like a prayer for them. All of their, they try to stay as connected to all aspects of life as possible. You know, the sunrises, the sunsets, the, the seasons, they, they live a very natural lifestyle. They're living on, in nature. They, it's kind of the opposite of what a lot of us have turned into in the modern world where we're completely disconnected from nature. We're inside all day long. We're, we're looking at our phones and we're, we don't have community. We don't have that feeling of just going outside and just meditating on, on the season and the flowers and the trees and feeling a part of life. You know, when you're part of a lot of what Brant helped me to do was to feel really connected to life itself. And, mm-hmm. you know, when, when things aren't going well at Iron Man those first six years, they, I, they didn't go well in my mind. I, I could feel myself just kind of going inside and with, mm-hmm. withdrawing. And it's like, it's a feeling like you're alone in a sense, because, you know, who wants to go out and, and tell your, your friends, man, I just had another amazingly bad race. Let me tell you about it. You go inside like this and he helped me to go beyond a result mm-hmm. and to just stay connected with what's actually more important. You know, he, like you said, the sun is going to rise the next day after your race. That's what's important. Connect with that and connect with the big island. It's a, it's an intimidating place. You know, it's very powerful. And, and everybody's experienced those places in nature that, where they feel something and you know maybe it's when you see a a snow-covered peak or you see an amazing raging river or the waves in the ocean or maybe just the subtle changes in the spring when everything starts to come out again you have this feeling like wow you know and in that wow moment you forget about your credit card debt you forget that Mm -hmm. you didn't win iron man you just feel good and so um, you know, Brant leads ceremonies to help you connect with that space. He gives practices in, in his teachings that enable you to get into that quiet mind space, which is so important as an athlete to quiet your mind, you know, cause in a race, you're going to have conversations with yourself, but most of them are not going to help you out. And it's very hard to come up with positive thoughts when everything is hurting and maybe somebody's pulling away and it's not turning out the way you hope. <sighs> When you're quiet, then all of a sudden you, you do look around. And in Kona, that was huge. Like I was running next to Dave Scott and I reached a point at the, at the half marathon where I didn't think I could continue. And I got quiet and I looked around I'm like, wow, look how amazing this is. You know, and I was looking at the lava and, and seeing how, just thinking how, how many thousands of years ago did this happen? And it's still so raw and all, you know, it's like, I felt good. And as crazy as it sounds, we need to practice feeling good, mm. just like anything else. And so, you know, quieting your mind is something that Brant teaches that we speak about uh, in the book, Fit Soul, Fit Body, Nine Keys to a Healthier, Happier You. Yeah, yeah, it's a great athlete, book, by the way. For those of you who haven't read it, you should definitely get it. It's a great book. You know, as an athlete, most people are looking at their Garmin data, and that tells them how their body's doing, but it doesn't mm. tell them how their emotional space is. That doesn't mm. tell them how their inner character is connecting or disconnecting from trust and hope and this steady commitment to staying engaged in things, even if it's not looking so rosy at the moment. Right. And those are all things that Brant helped me to, to develop. And that can, as you said, help anybody in any endeavor, especially if you're an athlete. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's true. And, it, and that was such an interesting weekend. I remember that same time you um, told a story about this German guy you used to train with who, you know, kind of taunt you, like as you were sort of going through your base building phase and he was doing the standard thing of trying to get stronger and stronger and not being patient for that. And he would get to the top of this hill and basically circle and tell you he was going to beat you in Hawaii. So I was hoping maybe you could share that story and help us understand, you know, how that relates and how we really have to be patient if we want to be successful in endurance sports. Yeah. And this was in 1995, the last year that I was going to do Ironman. I did my winter training in San Diego because it's pretty good weather and Mm -hmm. a lot of great athletes come there. One in particular was one of the best cyclists in the sport at that time, a guy named Jurgen Zak. And he called me right after the beginning of the year. And he, he asked me, he, he goes, Mark, you want to ride together? You know, and, and we decided, yeah, we're going to do this 110 mile loop that started on the coast and wound through uh, some pretty hilly sections inland and, and then come back and that we were going to be smart. We were going to put on our heart rate monitors the first month or two. We were going to keep the ride completely aerobic because those kind of rides can turn into mini competitions. Right. Mm-hmm. And so first ride we met and we'd 
gone through all the flat sections and there was a 12 mile climb. And my heart rate at the time, as we were going out, the flat sections was low. It was like 130 or something. And Jurgen and I are joking and laughing. And we got to the climb and right away, my heart rate went up to 150, which was my maximum aerobic heart rate. I wasn't going to go over it. And so I backed off the effort, try to keep it low enough. Jurgen just kind of pulled away and I could tell he was letting his heart rate go up, right? And he got to the top of the climb that first time, about 10 minutes ahead of me. And like you said, he was he was just circling at the top of the climb with that big grin on his face, like, Mock, I will beat you in October. <laughs> and so, you know, we did this week after week. And a month later, I was only five minutes behind. And the month after that, I was he was within sight when we got to the top of the climb. And then eventually it did get to the point where my aerobic base was built. And now it was my time to let my heart rate go up. Mm. And so on this first of the rides where I was going to just let my heart rate go, we were cruising out to the climb and then here comes the climb and I pulled away from Jurgen. And then I was circling around at the top about 10 minutes ahead of him before he finally came up and he just comes up and he's dripping with sweat and he's going, Mark, what coffee you drink today? <laughs> but it took patience. You know, the, the knee-jerk reaction for most athletes would have been, you know, forget it. I'm just going to try and stick with this guy because I'll get a really good workout. But then I would have shortchanged myself that real deep base of fitness that comes from aerobic training. And then once I got that built, then I could start adding the blocks of anaerobic training that then just took that big base of fitness and honed it into something that was truly amazing. Yeah. You know, um, one of the other things I was hoping we could talk about too is energy, right? Because it's just energy, right? It's just an expenditure of energy doled out over a period of time. And if you're going to have the best effort, that's how it works. And even in Ironman, right? The energy lab is like this sort of notorious place, which isn't really going to feed most people energy when you descend down into that thing. But, you know, when we're at that um, thing in, near Santa Cruz and you and Brant were on the beach, you know, Brant this one morning, he was very quiet and he said, the ocean is a living, breathing thing. And the wind is energy. All around us is energy. And and part of what I, I think you talked about in the book was how we as athletes in competition can actually draw from energy around us. Like you just kind of talked about, about just taking the energy of the island around you and all this amazing stuff that is, is really energy around you and take that during those dark moments of the race and use it. So, you know, how do you do that? How do you learn that? You just practice it. You know, you... Yeah. You, you can, like Brant said, you can just sit by the ocean or a lake or a stream and just breathe in that sound. And, you know, it's, it's filling you up with energy or life force. And he, he actually told me before I left for my final Ironman in 1995, he said, if you need help during the race, call out to the big island. It will hear you. It is oh. a, a living, breathing being. And the short version of that story is that I came off the bike uh, in fifth place, 13 and a half minutes behind the leader, Thomas Hellriegel. And so I had to make up 30 seconds a mile, every single mile of the marathon, if I was going to catch him at the finish line. Nobody had made up that kind of a gap to become the champion. I was 37 years old. Nobody had won as a 37-year-old. So I was do trying to do some things that were going to be first time ever done. You know, I couldn't Google, how do you win as a 37-year-old when you're 13 and a half minutes behind the leader? And so, I, you know, I was going through the marathon. I got to about eight miles to go in the marathon, and I was told I was four minutes back. So I was, I was making up 30 seconds a mile, but in relative terms, I was still just as far behind Hell Regal as when I started the, the marathon, and I was still only on pace to catch him at the finish line, and that is not a good place to catch a guy who he was, he's 13 years younger than me when you're trying to sprint for the world championship, and I, I needed something else. And then I remembered Brant's words. He said, call out to the island if you need help. And so I just said, hey, big island, help me here. I'm going to give everything I have, even if I completely blow up or come in an inch behind Hell Regal, I'm going to give it everything I have, but I need something extra. The next mile, I made up 40 seconds. Wow. The one after that, I made up a little over 50. The mile after that, I made up a minute and 15 seconds on the guy who had been leading for over six hours. Wow. Finally, at mile 23, I, I caught Thomas made the final pass of my Ironman career and went, went on to win that sixth and final title. And again, you know, people might go, oh, well, it was coincidence. Like you just got yourself in a different mindset. But for me, it was such a real tangible experience. Like I, you know, I called out to the island. I said, hey, I'm going to do my part, but I need you to help me. 
And that's kind of how life is, isn't it? We, there's no guarantee that if we give everything we have, things are going to turn out the way we hope. But certainly for things to turn out well, we have to be willing to commit to giving everything we have and to connect into that bigger feeling of life that's like, okay, here we go, not just mm -hmm. here I go. I think that a lot of those same sentiments, you know, about sort of seeing the world as bigger and powerful around us, like I think that you put a lot of that into the, the art of competition, the book that you put together. I mean, it's, it's not like your other books, right? So you've got a book basically about sort of mindset, spirituality, and all of that. You have another one that was just sort of like one of the original sort of Bibles of training methods and everything. And this is completely different. It really is. I think it comes from all of that awareness that you've gotten. So how, what can you tell us about, I mean, I have that book. It's fantastic. And how'd you decide to put that whole thing together um, when you decided to work on that book? Yeah, the art of competition, the main bulk of it are 90 quotes that I wrote <clears throat> talking about overcoming challenge and turning competition into art so that it's something that it enriches you in a very different way than just a finishing time or finishing place, placing will. And the, the backstory to it is that I was on a two-week retreat with Brant in Japan, and we were at Mount Fuji. Uh, we were staying in a little countryside uh, inn, family-run inn. And one afternoon, I just laid down on the tatami mat bed to uh, futon bed just to take a nap. And as I was laying there, this quote came about had to do with competing that was beyond competition. And then another one and then another one and another. I'm like, wow, these are kind of good. And I thought I better write them down because I'll forget them. And so mm -hmm. in the course of about two days, I had written down probably two thirds of the 90 quotes. It was just like a lot of things that I had been trying for years to find the words to express were coming to me. Mm -hmm. You know, people would say, well, how did, you, how did you keep yourself going when you were so far behind Hell Regal? And it's like, well, I just kind of got my mind quiet and I just kind of kept going. You know, it fell short. These right. quotes were encapsulating so many of the experiences that I'd had over the course of my career in these very concise words. And I got home, I wrote a total of 90, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And finally, I thought I should put it together with, some, with photographs from nature because nature is such an empowering uh, positive energy, positive attitude feeling that people have when they're in it. So put these quotes with photos from nature. And I have a, a friend, Nick Borelli, who is mm -hmm. a great nature photographer. And so we work together and put these all into, you know, a coffee table book that is big photos with each of the quotes. And uh, we're actually going to be coming out with an electronic version of it in probably oh, cool. another couple months. And they, they look amazing on a laptop or an iPad or, you know, your, your Kindle. So anyway, and then I wrote other, I wrote six chapters. One was about um, overcoming challenge and fear. And the final chapter was actually going to be called Art. And I, it was going to be describing my book and Iron Man victories, 1989, the first one, and 1995, the final one, because those are the two richest stories I have from racing in Kona, I think, anyway. But I had talked about those two races for years, and I thought, I can't just regurgitate the same exact story that I've told over and over and over. I need to figure out a different way to tell this. And so for literally a month, I would sit down in front of my computer and not one word came out. And I thought, the book's not going to happen. I can't write it without this chapter because I have to tell how I turned competition into art. One day I said, forget it. I went out surfing and I was sitting in the water and I was kind of daydreaming and all of a sudden, the whole story laid out in my mind. And I'm like, oh my God, I know how I'm going to tell it. And I went back home. I went back to my house and the whole final chapter just flowed out of me. So it's, again, you know, it's kind of just an interesting connection because the final chapter, the thing that I needed to bring it full circle, I got not when I was actually trying to do it, but when I was in nature doing something completely different. Wow. That's fantastic. So of all those quotes, I know there, there are a lot of great quotes in there, but if you had to pick one, which one do you think you would say is your favorite? Oh, geez. One of them, how does it go? Uh, pain is the song of the working body. Intense, intense pain is its symphony. Enjoy the music. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's, there's a lot of great quotes in there. You should, you've read it. Uh, again, we'll have it out in an electronic version in a, in a month or two. And um, 
that'll make it really accessible for people. Okay, great. So if you don't mind, we'll, when that comes out, we'll add that uh, to the show notes page so people can go there and, and go directly to get it. So Excellent. that'd be fantastic. All right. So in the total triathlete, I know one of the things you said um, was that when you go for it hundred percent, when you don't have that fear of what if I fail, that's when you learn. So what does fear really have to do with getting to the next level of an athlete's fitness? You know, Brant talks about fear a lot. And he said, fear is not who you are. That's not who you are. You are positive qualities, love and trust and steadiness. And you're connected. Uh, fear disconnects us from the things that are important. And we all have to deal with it. You know, nobody gets away without having to deal with fear. But he also said, you can be fearful, but don't let the fear hold you back. And mm -hmm. athletically, that's really key because that's saying go on to that start line no matter what maybe you're fearing the day you don't know what it's going to take but be fearless and face your fears start the race anyway and then mm. once you engage all of a sudden you realize oh yeah I this I can deal with this it's not easy but I'm dealing with it and it's empowering when you move beyond fear in that way meaning that it can still be there you may still fear the swim, you may still fear the heat on the run or the distance or whatever it is, but you're, you're out there anyway, being fearless in the face of those fears. And that's such an empowering moment because you have moved beyond that, that pull of fear that could keep you from even starting or keep you from really engaging. So obviously you take all those things, you know, all of these things that aren't normally discussed in terms of fear, in terms of managing stress and all that, and you include all that stuff as a part of your coaching style, I know. And obviously you've been successfully working with athletes for many, many years. And I've seen for years and years, all these people that win up age group rewards that are your athletes. You've had, we've worked with many, many pros and obviously even your personal experience, nobody listening to this can just go get the same personal experience as Mark Allen. But then you multiply that by all of these elite athletes that you've worked with year after year, many of them at the same time. And so you have many, many, many lifetimes of personal direct experience working with these kind of athletes. And that obviously affects your coaching style. So how would you say your coaching style has evolved over the years? The one thing that I've changed a little bit over the years is that I've, I have integrated, uh, more of the technology into how I track the athletes because it's mm -hmm. good. You know, like if somebody is out of balance in their fitness development and they're going hard all the time, their hard in my paradigm is going to be normal for them. Mm -hmm. And so if I ask them, are, are you training too hard or not? They'll go, no, I'm training the way I always do. Well, that's too hard. But with the data, you know, from heart rate and, and, and power, you know, seeing if they're getting faster, if they're given heart rates or seeing if they're getting faster and they're running at different heart rates, I can tell exactly what's going on physiologically, which enables me to actually really coach people no matter where they are in the world. So that part's, okay. that part is great. And then they're always, and then the aspect that keeps coming back that is so common is when things aren't going right. So whether it's like we talked about, you know, the, the rest of their life is out of whack and there's too much stress. So we, we discuss that and we, you know, try to, a lot of times just having the awareness be there that this stuff is affecting this right. in my training. All of a sudden it's really easy for them to, to make a shift that they need so that everything works. Mm. Um, but I would say, you know, and you didn't, you didn't specifically ask this, but what are two things that are the most common for holding people back? And there's actually three. One is stress. We've talked about that. The other is fear and the other is impatience. You mm -hmm. know, people are impatient. And so they see what I'm trying to have them do in their, in their training. And they just go into that gray area a few too many times each week. And that it slows their progress. Right. That also comes from a certain fear of I'm not getting there quick enough. And so fear, just let it go. Trust. I've been around the sport for since 1982, so 37 years or something like that. I look at every paradigm of, of coaching that there is out there. I look at, is lactate testing good? Is FTP good? Is, is heart rate variability good? I mean, there's all these tools that are out there and some of them I think are great to use. 
if used in the right way. And so my coaching has evolved. It's a little bit more technical now than it was a number of years ago, but I'm I'm not going to be the numbers freak that's going to look at every second of every one of your workouts because if you micro look at things, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're not seeing the big picture of how progress is going. So maybe one day on a micro level, they're super and the next day they're not so super and then they're super and then they're not so super. If you you start to change their workouts based on these little micro things instead of the grand movement, then you end up being the dog chasing the tail. And right. you know, I try to express that to my athletes too, like, don't worry, you had a lousy workout today, rest tomorrow. And then two days later, they go, yeah, that's all I needed. I feel great today. You know, so it's usually simple if you catch it early. That totally makes sense. I mean, and it, I think for most athletes, I mean, the fact is, is what we really remember is our last workout, you know, whether we felt good or not, whether we thought we were going fast or not. And we think that is always some indication of what's going to happen in the future. But that's why people need a coach, right? I mean, it's the bottom line. It's like, we're not really good at looking at the big picture for ourselves. And we're certainly not good at, in many cases, I think even being honest with what's actually happening in our training and all that data, like you said, I mean, what, 30 years ago, you'd have to basically watch someone's effort to see how they're doing. And today you can talk to them, you can get an email from them and you can look at their data and you can tell how things are going regardless of what they actually tell you. So it does keep them honest. And all those things give you sort of clues to what it's going to take for that athlete to be successful. And, you know, I know you do a lot of work with athletes. You do speaking engagements, all that stuff. You give some really um, great motivational speeches. And so if somebody wants to work with you personally, if they want to reach out to you and they're, you know, they're trying to make somebody who's trying to make it to Kona or somebody that wants to have you as a motivational speaker to share your stories and experience in a corporate event or something like that, what's the best way for them to reach out to you directly? Yeah, if you're interested in looking at what I offer my coaching, you can go to markallencoaching.com. If you have questions about that, um, please email me, mark at markallencoaching.com. And certainly, if you have a corporate audience where you're trying to find a a speaker who can motivate folks and tell some good good stories, I I think of myself more as sort of like an inspirational speaker. I'm not Mm -hmm. like, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm telling you stories from the real human side of stuff of not only how did I, how did I keep going in the years where things weren't turning out the way I'd hoped? And then also what were some of the switches that I had to make to then finally get it together and actually go there and win. And then to keep that, that winning spirit up for six years in a row. And so they, if you're interested in that, you can also email me, Mark at markallencoaching.com and, and I'll get right back to you. That's great. Mark, this has really been fantastic. I mean, I know you're super busy. Uh, it, I really feel privileged that you've you know, come on the show to talk about all this and share your experience with all of us and, and all of your insights, um, all of your wisdom. And it's just been fantastic. I mean, really and truly, I'm grateful for you coming. So thanks for coming on the show today. All right, Chris. We'll see you again soon then. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And listen, if I want to ask you to do a huge favor for me, please share it with one of your friends. Send it to somebody who's a runner who you think can benefit from the podcast so that they can keep running as well without injury. And please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to your podcast. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me. And then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.